Good morning and welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So glad that you're here. I'd like to begin our service by considering a few of our announcements, most of which you'll find on the back of your bulletin. And so I won't read every word, but I will draw your attention to a couple of things. Next week during Sunday school, we have our rally day where we recognize our teachers and our students for all that they've done the last uh, year or so, anticipating a few that will move up from one class, acknowledging those things. And we'll have breakfast together. So we're uh, asking you to come and meet in the fellowship hall at 9.15. It says 9.30 on the bulletin. Uh, I want you to trust what I say, not what we printed. It's at 9.15 next Sunday. Our joy group is uh, planning uh, an outing on the 7th. Uh, joy stands for just older youth. Of course, we're trusting it for its double meaning, that the Lord will bless the fellowship. These uh, are opportunities to get together and do things together and enjoy each other's company. And so if you're interested in that trip, October, we need to know pretty quickly so we can make the arrangements, uh, tickets, and those sorts of things. Uh, Midge Davis is the contact person for that. Our WIC Circle uh, is meeting not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, right? Yes. So you can put that on your calendar, women. Also for women, you'll note in the insert... Uh, you'll find an announcement on one side that describes a ladies' night out. It's this coming Wednesday, this week. Meet at the church at 5.30, dinner in Starkville. Uh, and this is to kind of plan how they would like ladies' night out to work. And so if that's something that you can do, uh, Jamie Willers and Christy McCown are your contacts. And, or you could just show up at 5.30 on Wednesday uh, this week. And then uh, one last announcement. Beginning uh, next week, we are planning to uh, get our nursery started back up. It's been quite some time since we've been able to have a nursery. So uh, we recognize that that's something that some of our families need and could benefit from. So uh, we are anticipating to staff that nursery with uh, volunteers we've had a number of people sign up. We're uh, actually relatively close to the number we'd like to have where uh, our teams would only serve you know, every three or four months. Uh, we could use still a few more. So if you're willing to uh, volunteer for the nursery, we would like to know, and you can do it as simply as uh, put your name on this paper and stick it in the offering, and then we'll make sure we get added to the list. We will provide training and all that you need to know about uh, the ministry in the nursery, uh, but we could use your help. There are maybe a few other announcements for you to read. Uh, m- mostly what we're here to do is to give praise and honor to our God, a God who has loved us and not even withheld his son from us, but gave him up for us all, that we might be rescued, that we might be forgiven, that we might know the smiling face of the God of heaven and to have his good hand upon us. Would you take just a few moments to meditate on the favor of God that brings you to worship today, that you might worship him in spirit and in truth.
I am thankful for our liturgy because the call to worship is the way we start our worship service. It's God's call to us, no matter what we bring with us into this building that is on our minds or our hearts, God cuts through all of the noise and he says, come and worship me and see how glorious I am and how gracious I am and how I am involved in all of your lives, whatever is going on. Would you please stand for our call to worship from Psalm 133. God is inviting us to worship him. This is God's word. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Would you please worship with me? We'll sing hymn number 56, When All Your Mercies, O My God. Let's worship God together. God, we come this morning to worship you because you have commanded 
the blessing, life forevermore, life forevermore in your Son, Jesus, who by faith in Him we have life as we are united to Him by faith. God, we worship you. We worship your Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you be with us this morning? Would you empower us, give us strength, give us the ability to think clearly, to hear your word? Would you be magnified through this time of worship and through your word and through our singing? God, you are good and you are so good to us. Would you lead us in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would take your bulletin, we are moving our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, which we believe is a helpful summary of what God's Word teaches us about Himself and the world. And we have a few questions here. If you would by faith, respond with the bold print. I will ask each question uh, with you responding in turn. Believer, does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly displeased with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally. As he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but He is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the Most High Majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. You may be seated. God reveals himself to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, willing to forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But he is also a God who says that he will not let the guilty go unpunished, that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate him. It is not a trifling matter to sin against God, and yet... All are condemned and all are guilty before him. In Romans, it tells us that when we stand before God, no one will have an excuse. Rather, our mouths will be quiet. We will stand rightly and even self-consciously aware that it's right, condemned, apart from God's mercy. And as we have confessed in our faith, the Heidelberg Catechism very slowly is leading us to the place where we see how deeply and desperately we need the mercy of God. We must confess 
the terrible judgment of God if we're going to recognize the greatness of His mercy. We must see against this backdrop of what we deserve the beauty of His mercy, which comes within a few questions. So stay tuned. But for now, as you anticipate the, the, the mercy of God, let's confess our need of it. We're going to take a moment in silent and individual prayer for you to bring your heart as it is before God to confess your need of mercy. Be as specific as you can. Confess your own sins. We admitted generally that we're guilty. In God's wisdom, he calls us to confess our sins in order to know his forgiveness deeply. Take just a moment to confess your sins, to pray to God your own heart. After just a moment, I'll lead us in corporate prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we are uh, a people who have transgressed your law. We have committed sins, uh, some that we didn't even notice. Uh, such is our conscience now that, that we can sin against you, that we can violate what you have revealed for us to do and not do and not even notice. There are places where we know very well where we have sinned. We have seen the damage that it has done. We have seen the way that we have hurt others, the way we have neglected each other, the way we have taken our own lives and twisted them away from what you have revealed. We have done the very things you told us not to do, and we have left undone the things that you have commanded of us. And in every sense, we come to you with open hands, nothing that we could bargain with, there's nothing that we can now offer you to, to overcome our sin. We can't do enough penance. We can't do enough good works to make, make sense or overcome or, or, or cover our transgressions. And, and so there is no place for us to turn except that you would show mercy. And you have demonstrated that you're, you loved us when we were still sinners when we were utterly against you. In everything that we thought and did, it was only about what we wanted, only about how we would manage our own lives. In that moment, you demonstrated your love for us, for Christ died for sinners. And now that you have raised in us a spark of holy spiritual life, that inside our bodies, you have begun to conduct this reclamation and restoration work of our souls. You are renewing us body and soul in the whole man after the image of Christ that we might share in his spiritual life and his physical resurrection and that that is our birthright according to your mercy. So we confess our sins and we confess them as forgiven sins. We confess our sins knowing the weight of sin against you is greater than we can bear, but your mercy triumphs over judgment. 
And so with each sin we confess, we grow in our thankfulness. We grow in our sense that, that your mercy is magnificent and beautiful. It wins us to worship. And our deepest desire, Lord, is that the mercy that we have seen, that we confess, that we know and experience, would be experienced by others. That you would be praised by many voices because they have heard of your mercy and received it. We pray that you would bring revival, awakening within your churches, renewed devotion to your kingdom and to your word and to your way of life. And as a result, it would bring people who do not know you into your church to be established in the joy of your salvation. Father, we live in a world that is profoundly and deeply opposed to you, and it grieves us. We, we confess on behalf of our nation our sins. We have turned against you. Father, this week we have seen perhaps a small movement that might make it once again illegal to commit abortion. And we pray that you would accomplish that among us. But our goal is not merely that it would be illegal, but that it would become unthinkable. I pray that you would make us the kind of people who recognize life and give thanks for life that you have given to respect it and to recognize it is yours to give and to take and not ours. We're thankful that the weight of your mercy covers all our sins. I pray for women who have had an abortion that you would show them the abundance of your mercy that can cover every sin and it would lead them to life in Christ Jesus. And that for every person in this room, the sin or sins they look back on and say, I can't believe I did that. That they would be able to set it aside, your mercy, and say, how great is the grace of our God. And it would make us thankful, devoted, aware of the people around us and their needs. I pray that because we have seen how you come to us, that we could come near to those who are lonely, that our heart would go out to our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. We are thinking very clearly of Christians in Afghanistan, but there's a, a, a band of countries all throughout this world in which it is dangerous to follow Jesus. Give those brothers and sisters courage. And for those that suffer, I pray that you would make their blood an investment so that the church flourishes and grows as they model Christ and declare him to be their hope that not even death and persecution can extinguish. Father, I am thankful that we can come and worship in a place that's comfortable and safe and free, that we can sing publicly we can be the church here, and it, it costs us very little. I pray that you would make us desire to pay that cost. 
to give of ourselves and our time to each other and to your kingdom, for you are worthy. That we could respond to your mercy with deep devotion and trust and delight, and that joy gives us strength. Grant us forgiveness of sins. Grant us real repentance. Make our hearts sing for the honor of Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen.
Please pray with me. God, we dedicate uh, these tithes and offerings to your ministry in this church and in this town and uh, across the world. Would you use this money, uh, even as little as it may be, to do amazing things, to do far more than we could ever think or imagine? God, you are good to us. We pray that you would multiply uh, your work through this uh, time of uh, these tithes and offerings. And we thank you for this opportunity to give. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please continue standing? And we will sing hymn number 353, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord, hymn 353. Let's continue worshiping together. Please be seated. Turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah 3. The name John Scully, if that rings a bell, you're probably somebody who just loves the business world. John Scully was the president of Pepsi in the 80s. Uh, the president of Pepsi in the 80s when the, the, uh, Pepsi was ascending, doing well, uh, achieving and accomplishing, growing. And uh, it, it, for a while, it really looked like Pepsi would pass Coca-Cola and be more popular, have more cultural influence. John Scully was presiding over a good portion of that growth. Global success at the highest levels, that's... That's what he was doing. And the account goes that Steve Jobs came to John Scully and said this. 
Do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or come with me and change the world? Well, who could say no to that? Now, I don't really know what fully uh, happened and what was the full sales pitch or what persuaded John Scully to leave the heights of Pepsi and join a company that was modest by global standards and uh, would spend a number of years barely making a profit or even taking losses before, well, perhaps you've heard of Apple. They are now, according to stock prices, the most valuable company in the world. And I think it's reasonable to say they changed the world. Changing the world resonates with something in us. It's something that, that connects with uh, a part of human code deeply embedded in how you are wired. And it's because God, when he created mankind, intended for you to be part of something far bigger than just our individual lives. He intended for us to carry out God's grand scheme of caring for all the world and for each other in a beautiful way that would demonstrate the tapestry of God's goodness in humanity, and for each of us to play the thread that is our lives in that big tapestry. So being a part of something that changes the world resonates with something that's really deeply encoded in who you are as a human being. Now, what did it probably look like to change the world? Well, in uh, business terms, there were days when it was glorious and wonderful, uh, an announcement of a new product that, that made the news. But for the most part, it was probably hearing about a crisis and having to solve it or going to, you know, four or five meetings in a day and talking about analysis of business trends and here's what people are thinking and here's how the accounting's going and here's what's going on in the, you know, technology sector, etc., etc. The kind of thing that would just be, well... Tedious and mundane. In fact, that's actually how you change the world. Through the mundane, the ordinary, the embodied things to which you put your hands. Nehemiah 3 actually shows you how God intends to change the world. And it's through, quite frankly, very ordinary work. Before we read it, would you pray with me? Our God in heaven, as we come to this passage of Scripture that really does recite some things that are very ordinary. We pray that through these ordinary things, what we would see is your handiwork, your glory and majesty that we serve. And it would help us to, to place our lives in the context of your grand order of the universe, that we could trust you with the just passing minutes of our lives. And in doing so, we would find Jesus to be satisfying to our hearts. Now we pray, open our eyes to see your word, to see you revealed in these words. We pray that you would bless the reading and reflections on your word, that you would accomplish your will in us, that you would make us holy and delighted in Jesus, able to trust him and give ourselves to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter of Nehemiah 3, but I'm only going to read a section of it rather than the whole thing. We'll start in verse 1. Beloved, this is God's word. Then 
Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanaah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshashazabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and next to them repaired Malatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite, and the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, and the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzael, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruled half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section in the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. This is God's word. It's completely true, and it's utterly trustworthy. Uh, I will go ahead and give you a little foreshadowing of the section of this chapter we didn't read. It sounds pretty similar. In fact, it goes on to describe a total of about 41 different groups working on the wall, repairing, setting beams, and it's a little repetitious. It's a lot repetitious, actually. It just says the same thing over and over again. They, they worked, they uh, built the wall, they reset the gates, they did the things that you're supposed to do, and he describes each section. And if you were to, you know, draw a map from his words, you would get from the sheep gate all the way around the wall back to the sheep gate, which is how he ends. And it doesn't exactly captivate you, you know, with this sort of diary of a work day on the wall. Part of the reason it doesn't captivate you is the distance it's removed from us. After all, it's describing cities that you don't know. I mean, Tekoa, and you've heard of Jericho, but we just heard of it. Uh, cities like Zenoa and whatever. They're just not familiar. But, but just imagine for a second if there was a grand, uh, you know, monument being built in Jackson. And you started reading the account of it, and it was describing people who worked on it. And they were from cities like, you know, Madison and, and you know, Oxford and Starkville. 
And then you read the, the people who worked on it from Louisville. You'd go, oh, yeah, I know them. You pay attention. It's your cities. Well, of course, Nehemiah is writing to people who would say, these are my cities. And then the names, which are not just so foreign to us that we don't recognize them. They're just hard to pronounce. And I'm guessing, to be quite frank, when I pronounce them, uh, they're just not our people. But if you started seeing names of, of families that you knew, you know, if you remember back when the, the levees broke on the Mississippi and a huge flood in the early 20th century in Mississippi, if you knew people who'd gone and, and there was a book came out and, and those families of your friends were in the book, you'd be paying attention. You'd be a little more captivated. Of course, that's who Nehemiah's writing to. He's writing to people who would go, these are my families, these are my people. And so it gets a little lost on us. And I want you to, to remember where we are in the book of Nehemiah. Okay, so just go back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, what we see is the heart of God for his people, and that heart is being formed in a person, Nehemiah. And I asked you, and I, I hope that you will still continue to do so, to pray that God would form his heart for his people in each of us. In chapter 2, we see the power of God being executed in history, guided by his heart, turning kings like Artaxerxes from his position of against the wall to being for the welfare of Jerusalem. We see him providing the resources that are needed. We see Nehemiah beginning to act. And it's God's providence providing and ordering his good hand on Nehemiah and this project. Now we get to chapter 3. We've seen the heart of God and the power of God. Now we're going to see what that really looks like. If you experience the heart of God and the power of God, wouldn't you think that would be, that's the spiritual life. That is the life that we long for. The heart of God and the power of God. And what does it look like? Well, it, it looks pretty ordinary. They're building a wall. They're doing carpentry. What do you think God is trying to instruct us with this passage? Well, I want you to see just two facets. And I think you could probably draw other lessons about what God is doing in the world from this passage. But the two that stand out is that this group is made very diverse but practices a unity. They are given to this project of restoring Jerusalem. And what underlies that unity is a humility. So I want you to see a humble unity. And then the, the second thing to look for in this passage is kind of what spirituality looks like. And it turns out to be quite gritty, embodied. It, it gets your hands dirty. And, and that's what real spirituality will look like. It will be showing up and it will be ordinary, but it will be real. And so I want you to see a gritty spirituality, humble unity, and a gritty spirituality. So let's start. Um, think about this. First verse, Elisha the high priest and his brothers, 
the priests, they start working on the sheep gate. Now, priests grow up in a family in which that's going to be your job. You start from a child knowing, this is what I'm going to do as a priest. I'll be a priest. Because the one family was assigned to be the priesthood, the descendants of Aaron. And so you grow up in, as a descendant of Aaron, you're going to be a priest. You win the lottery. Well, if you're growing up training to be a priest, you probably don't grow up also learning the other trades. You know what you're supposed to do. You learn up. uh, you, You grow up learning how to lead people through sacrifices, how to take this animal that a person has brought and lead them through the process of offering that sacrifice. You learn how to conduct the worship services. So this idea of now doing carpentry for the sheep gate is... It's not in the wheelhouse of your typical priest, but it is what's needed that day. You see the same thing going all throughout in verse 14. Look at this. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakerim, repaired the, the dung gate. Now, I'm not entirely sure why One of the gates is called the dung gate. The sheep gate was where they brought sheep in for the sacrifices. So I don't really know exactly why the dung gate is called the dung gate. But here is a guy who's a ruler. He is an empowered man. And his team's working on the dung gate. Next to him were servants. Look at verse 26. And the temple servants living in on, on Ophel repaired to, to the point opposite the water gate on the east and to the projecting tower. And so here you have in this lineup of folks, those who were empowered politicians and uh, people who were essentially slaves. You can see now priests and laymen, rulers and slaves, you can see the geography that's diverse. We mentioned the city of Tekoa in verse 5 and 27, Jericho in verse 2. Tekoa is about probably 15 miles south of, of Jerusalem. Jericho is about 10 to 12 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's on a hill, so everybody that comes has to go uphill. They literally get, could tell their kids, we went uphill to go to work. And they had to walk. It was a chore. They had to leave their regular uh, family, their regular homes, their regular work in order to come and and work together on this. That doesn't even address Gibeon, verse 7, Mizpah, and 7, 15, and 19, Zenoah, Beth-Hakerim, Beth-Zur, Kila, all these little cities that range from about 20 to 30 miles away, sending people to come work on this wall, leaving their ordinary work, and joining together. And, And of course, they're not residents of Jerusalem. There's not a personal interest from rebuilding the walls here. When the walls get rebuilt and the city is restored and well-established, they're going to go home. They're doing this for others. There are a few who are noted to have residents in the city, but not most. It tells us that there are, in verse 8 and 31, merchants, perfumers, and goldsmiths. 
in verse 12, we read, one man brought his daughters. This is an every man sort of work. And most of them would be out of place. There would be a few who would probably be like legitimate carpenters or, 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 or builders. But most are out of place. Most are doing work that they feel like is not really their work. Now, just so you can see it, look at verse 5 again by contrast. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. There were some who looked at this and said, that work is beneath me. I'm not getting that low. But some said, I will take this low position. They really did see it as something that was low, insignificant perhaps. It was a work that was beneath their stations for a lot of these who are working on the wall. And I I want you just to see that there is, in order for this wall to be rebuilt, this project that's under the blessing of God, it required people to say, I don't need the recognition. I don't need the, the honor. I don't need the high places. I will hold a trowel and a saw and a hammer and do the work that's required this day. It is at the heart of the biblical faith to say, Lord, lead me to the low position. Take me to the place that nobody else wants to go. Take me to the place where the need is great, but nobody else is willing to serve. Even if it's not where I'm gifted, even if it's not where I feel strong, even if it's not something that I would ordinarily even be able to see myself doing, take me there. The low place is where I want to be. Now, even as I say that is at the heart of biblical faith, I recognize in my own heart, and I anticipate in yours, some of us saying, uh... Good idea, I don't really want that. I like it in sort of abstraction, but when it comes to concrete, actually give me a low position, I'm not sure I want to do it. So how do we get the heart to say, Lord, put me in the place where I won't be recognized and I won't be honored and I might not be thanked, but it's a necessary work? Well, one way I could do it is to try to guilt you, you know, Here's the need. I can't believe not more of you have said, let me help. But, but ultimately, that might get your attention for about an hour. Guilt and shame are terrible long-term motivators. Plus, they just make you resent it. Rather, what I want you to do is I want you to look again at Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be claimed, but rather made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient, submissive to the point of death, even death on a cross. And when he did, what he was doing was he was saying, I will, by my death, take the low position and serve you where the need is great, and no one else will do it. He comes not for you to go, Oh, I'm so bad. I can't do that. He come to say, I know you can't do that. 
That's why I'm doing it for you. But the result, and this is sort of the, the judo effect of Christianity, this very thing that, that I resist, I see in Jesus, but I see him doing it for me, and I find it so beautiful that I really want other people to see Jesus that way. And I know the only way they're ever going to see Jesus as the one who did this is if they see it lived out in someone else. And all of a sudden, now, for Jesus' sake, for his honor, I'm willing to, to broadcast his beauty by taking a low position. This is why uh, John the Baptist eventually says, I must decrease and he must increase. He got the idea that this guy is so good and so delightful and and so much the joy of my heart that if I can decrease and he becomes greater, then I am happier. If you want to become the person who can serve in a beautiful, humble unity, you must become enamored with Jesus. There really is no other way to see his beauty is what you desire to see in all of life. The, the second part is of this humble unity working together in this grand project is a gritty spirituality. I mean, you just need to see the kinds of words that are repeated in this passage. Here they are. Repaired, beams and bars, doors and bolts, over and over again. It's just concrete. Now, you'll hear people, especially Americans, okay? I think this is, this is true among Americans more than anybody. You know, people say, I'm a spiritual person. And what they mean when people say I'm a spiritual person is I have this internal sense of something out there. And we might even mean I have this internal sense of the God of the Bible and Jesus out there that it has an emotional impact on me, but it is primarily internal and private. But a better understanding of spirituality is to be living under the influence of God's Spirit. Eugene Peterson, uh, a theologian, a pastor for many years, became the professor at Regent College of Spiritual Theology, was being interviewed, I think, by Christianity Today when he was asked about spirituality. And he was assessing that idea that, that spirituality is primarily an internal feeling or sense. Here's what he says. That's a naive view of spirituality. What we're talking about is the Christian life. It's following Jesus. Spirituality is no different from what we've been doing for 2,000 years just by going to church, receiving the sacraments, being baptized, learning to pray, reading the scriptures rightly. It's just ordinary stuff. The promise of intimacy, this internal spiritual sense, is both right and wrong. There is an intimacy with God, but it's like any other intimacy. It's part of the fabric of your life. In marriage, you don't feel intimate most of the time, nor with a friend. Intimacy isn't primarily a mystical emotion. It's a way of life, of openness, honesty, a certain transparency. It's living the concrete life that you have before God and before God's people. He wanted to illustrate, if you read the saints, they're pretty ordinary people. There are moments of rapture and ecstasy, but once every ten years, 
And even then, it's a surprise to them. They didn't do anything. We've got to disabuse people of these illusions of what Christian life is. It's a wonderful life. But it's not wonderful in the way a lot of people want it to be. What we want, he says, is a cheap shortcut. I, I'm, I need to quote Eugene Peterson at length because he's, he's right. He says, what we want is a cheap shortcut. <clears throat> Hang on, I lost my place. It's a cheap shortcut. I guess I have to use the word spirituality. It avoids the ordinary, the everyday, the physical, the material. It's a form of Gnosticism where it's all in your head and not your embodied life. It has terrific appeal because the spirituality doesn't have anything to do with doing the dishes or changing diapers or going to work. For 45 years, he says, I've been a pastor and I love doing this, but to tell you the truth, people who give me the most distress come and say, Pastor, how can I be spiritual? He says, forget about being spiritual. How about loving your husband? That's a good place to start. That's not what they're interested in. How about learning to love your kids and accept them the way they are? There is a a gritty spirituality that's lived out in the body and with the hands. And they know this is the spiritual work because God had told them. The prophet Jeremiah, about 150 years earlier, had said, as Babylon was building the siege works that would eventually destroy those walls, he said, let me buy a field right outside, being trampled on by the Babylonian army. And they're looking at him like, you're out of your mind. He goes, no, no, no. God's going to bring us back, and I think I can get the field cheat today. Jeremiah said this in chapter 33. Behold, I will bring it to health, the city, and healing. I will heal them and reveal them to the abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them of all their guilt and their sin and I will forgive the guilt of their sin rebellion against me and this city shall be to me a name of joy and praise and glory before all the nations. They knew God was restoring Jerusalem and so they put their hands to the work that they knew he was doing. It's not that different for us. What is God doing? What has he said he will do? He says, I will build my church. I will build it. I will see God's people grow in holiness. I will see it done. He says, I will see all people from from every tongue and tribe and nation gathered together under the name and banner of Jesus. I will see it done. This is what God is doing. And now he is calling you to put your hands to that work which sounds grand. Here's what it looks like. It looks like teaching children in a Sunday school class. It looks like serving on the nursery. It looks like being a member of a committee that's trying to plan when things should happen and what kind of discipleship stuff we can do with our time and our resources and with our church's needs. It looks like praying in a closet. It looks like making a phone call or sharing a meal or or listening to someone humbly because you know that they're experiencing heartache and trouble and you're just going to cry with them 
because you can't fix it. And they have to trust God in the darkness and they just want someone who will say, well, then I'll sit with you in the dark. This is what it looks like to build the church. This is what God has blessed. And it gives you one last motivation. I mean, the fact that it's written here that the ones who contributed to this project are named in God's eternal word. He has said, I'm noticing and I've written it down. And lest you think this is a unique moment in Revelation chapter 14, John hears a voice and he says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. Your deeds are being written down by heaven so that they in some way echo into eternity and accompany you in the rest in the presence of God. God takes note of every devoted prayer you have prayed on behalf of his church. He, he notices every text message and phone call you have attempted to serve a person of God's people. He takes note of every time you have asked a question because you say, I want someone to know there is a person interested in their life. I want them to have a tangible person who is demonstrating the care of Jesus for them. Every time you have taught a Sunday school class, he noticed Every time you have tried to encourage a little child in the faith, he has noticed. He has written it down. And it lasts for eternity. This God who has said, I'll build my church, has now said, come join me in it, in the concrete everyday part of it. Build a wall, do some carpentry, love a child, and change the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to, to see your hand building your church, that your good hand is on us. Help us to see the, the very nature of that kind of work is ordinary, day-to-day, embodied life, following your spirit and doing the things you have given us to do. Now we pray, send us out equipped to bear your name wherever you've called us to be, and may your kingdom spread and the fame and honor of Jesus grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our church is built on one foundation. It is the foundation of Jesus and the blessings that he gives. Hymn 347. We're going to sing verses 1, 2, and 6. 1, 2, and 6 of 347. Let's stand and sing.
If you are trusting in Christ, you are beloved and you are blessed. And so I would ask you to receive in faith the blessing of God who has made you to be priests, to serve the world, and to go in his blessing and add your amen to it. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.